Girlfriends, episode number 147, Four Ways to Raise Compassionate Kids. Hello and welcome to Girlfriends. I'm Danielle Bean. I'm a wife and a mom, and I'm on a mission to help you know your worth as a woman so you can find peace, balance, and joy in family living. This week, we're talking about ways to raise compassionate kids, kind kids. Isn't that all any of us ever wants? Can't wait to talk about this important topic with you. Let's get started. Hey, girlfriends, how are you? Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me for a new episode of the Girlfriends Podcast. You know, I always love that we can connect in this way, even when it's very early on a very dreary morning. I'm thrilled to be here with you and happy that you're listening. So it is a dreary early Monday morning, but I'm counting my blessings in it because I've had a wonderful weekend with family. And at the start of every week, do you feel this? I mean, if you're a stay-at-home mom, perhaps you don't feel the start of the week quite so much. Um, Although I always did, even when I wasn't working at all, because my husband was working and it was like getting into a routine with school and everything. Um, But Mondays can be really hard. They can be a really difficult thing. Even like I remember as a kid dreading like just Monday morning so much that it would ruin my Sunday evening. And um, so this is something I've kind of worked on throughout my life to kind of rearrange my attitude. And I try to look at Mondays as an opportunity. Here comes a new week. Here comes a new day. Here comes a new opportunity to do stuff and to focus on new goals and, um, you know, get back into our routine of work and school and whatnot. Anyway, I'm trying to have that attitude and it's extra challenging this morning because we happen to have a late night last night. But I love you guys and I'm thrilled to be here connecting with you in this way. I wanted to give you a little update on my book, You Are Enough, What Women of the Bible Teach You About Your Mission and Worth. I am so thrilled because it continues to hold that number one new release spot in Catholic books on Amazon. I am choosing to believe that that is significant. (laughs) And I'm so thrilled, you guys. I'm so encouraged by the fact that you are ordering the book, that you're telling your friends about the book. And I'm really looking forward to getting some feedback. I've gotten a little bit already from some people who've received their books and are using their companion journals, even getting together with girlfriends to talk about the content of the book. So for those of you who might be new or you haven't heard about the book yet, I just want to share very briefly that the book is about women of the old Testament and what we can learn about God's unique love for you and God's unique mission that he calls you to from those timeless and eternal stories of women in the Old Testament. And I find it's a really powerful exercise to look at those women's stories and see the ways in which they apply to us today. Now, if you ordered the book on Amazon and you got a delay notice, I want to make this note here. Um, the book sold out on Amazon, which is a good thing because it meant they didn't order enough to keep up with the demand for the number of copies that you guys ordered. So I appreciate that. And that's good news. But it's bad news for people who might be getting messages from Amazon saying it's going to be like two plus weeks before you get your book. If that's you and you're disappointed, know this. Ascension has tons of books in stock and they're ready to ship them out right away. So if you ordered through Amazon and you're disappointed with the ship date they're giving you, you can go ahead and cancel that order. I will not be offended. And then order a make a new order at ascensionpress.com for you are enough and they will ship it right out to you. So let me know when you receive the book. Let me know when you have some feedback. And for those of you who do have the book and you've read the book and you've enjoyed the book, 
I would love it if you would give me an Amazon review. Right now, as of this recording, I think I have zero Amazon reviews. I mean, we're just getting started. I'm not blaming you guys. But I am asking you to please take a moment and do that because it's so valuable to an author to have those Amazon reviews because it really helps your ranking at Amazon. It really helps to spread the word about the book. Amazon is more likely to suggest it to other people who buy similar books or have similar interests if it has those reviews. So if you got the book and you enjoyed the book, even just taking a minute just to, you know, click a star rating and just write a sentence or two about your experience with the book, it would mean the world to me. So if you have the opportunity to do that, I would be so grateful. We're going to talk a little bit more about the content of the book later in the show. Um, I've been sharing on recent podcasts one different character from the book, and this week we're going to be talking about Judith, but that's coming up in just a minute. But to dive into this week's topic... Four Ways to Raise Compassionate Kids. Now, this came to me because a listener, Janine, sent me just a quick little note about that this was a goal of hers, to raise compassionate kids. And she wondered if I had any thoughts about that and suggested it as a topic. So thank you, Janine. I appreciate the topic because this is something important to me, too. I think we all have that goal. When it comes to raising our kids, and for me personally, when it comes to raising my kids, nothing, nothing makes me prouder than when they're kind. No athletic or academic achievement or accomplishment could ever be as meaningful to me. And I think a lot of us share that. So this is an important topic. How do we do that? So right at the outset, I do want to say, because there are certain Catholic authors in particular that kind of get on my nerves with the way they're like, this is how you raise kids. And here's how you raise a Catholic kid who's perfect. Well, no, um, this is not that, okay? I'm not telling you guaranteed results. This is how you raise compassionate kids. But um, for sure, uh, we can share things that are helpful, things that have worked for us, um, things that might increase your odds of having the outcome that you want. Um, I just, I don't want this to, uh, to come off as and I hope I never do come off as like, here's science, do these things and you will get this outcome because that's not parenting. That's not life. You know, it's, it's not science, it's art and it's grace and it's relationship. And all of those things have a lot of wiggle room in both directions messed up by your kid's own free will. So this is not a science project. All right, people got that. Four ways to raise compassionate kids, though. I want to share some things that I have found that have worked. Some, Not all of this is my own wisdom. Some of it's stuff that um, Dan has taught me through his parenting. Um, but some of it's been, you know, sort of wisdom that I've gleaned from others or, you know, experiences over the years. So the first way that I want to share with you to raise compassionate kids is to give them structure. Now, this seems maybe counter intuitive because you're thinking, I want to raise kind kids, so I need to be super kind. And sometimes we equate kindness in our minds with a lot of leeway, a lot of squishiness, right? And not a lot of structure, maybe. A lot of you do what you want and I'll be kind to you. Well, um, it's been my experience that that actually is not kind. That is not kindness in parenting. The kids crave structure. That's how they experience a form of love through your parenting. It's human to want structure and discipline and to know what your boundaries and your limits are. So give them security in having rules and giving them security in knowing what those rules are and why we have those rules. Because rules are kindness. A lot of the rules that we have in place, if you think about it, as human beings, whether it's rules inside of a family or rules you know, in a greater sense in our society at large, are, are based on kindness toward others, decency toward others, taking 
into account the thoughts and feelings of others. Because left to our own devices, we might not do that. We kind of need the rules to set that structure for us. Part of that structure in your own home is going to be expecting your kids to help out in your family. Is that part of your family structure? Is that part of your family dynamic? I've shared before, we've talked about chores multiple times on the podcast. Sometimes it's hard for me. Sometimes I have a hard time doing this because it doesn't feel kind to interrupt your child when he's watching a favorite cartoon show and say, you know what, the dishes really need to be washed right now. Or, you know, the trash really needs to be taken out. It doesn't feel kind in the moment. But in the bigger picture, it is kindness. It is love to give your kids that kind of structure. And by regular assigning chores, maybe you don't have to interrupt their favorite cartoon show if you have basic chores and times when those things get done. The times when I've been most successful in kind of chore routines in our family life have been the years where, out of necessity, I've been more organized about it, tended more toward organization, which is not my thing, usually. I'm not usually the hyper-scheduled planner kind of person, but... During certain seasons of our family life where, um, especially when all the kids were little and I had a new pregnancy because I do nothing but vomit for those first at least three months, oftentimes going into up, up to six months, so sick at the beginning of pregnancy that the minute I take that positive test before I started puking, I'd be like, okay, we need to get some things in shape around here if we're going to survive the next few months. And so it was kind of out of desperation and necessity that I had some more structured times inside of our family life. And it really, it really was a good experience. It really bore a lot of fruit for me and for our kids to have that kind of structure. So the times when I've been most successful, so this is for those of you who have um, younger kids, were when I would have set aside chore times. And I found it was easy to do it around meal times. And um, it would be like, when you get up in the morning, you do this before breakfast. After breakfast, you do this. Next chore time would naturally be, you know, before lunch, if everybody's at home. Or, and next chore time would be after lunch. Here's what you do. And, you know, all age-appropriate stuff. But just the plain idea of expecting help teaches your kids that we're responsible for one another. We're responsible for contributing to the common good. And that goes beyond your family life eventually into the, the world at large. They'll have that same attitude that I'm a member of a group and I can contribute. And there's so much self-esteem and uh, feeling of accomplishment and pride that comes to even older kids when they're able to contribute in meaningful ways. You know, I was thinking even of my older kids when when they first have learned to drive, that it's actually a huge help to me to be able to hand them a list and have them run out and get some things for me. And I remember one Christmas in particular, I thought to myself, gosh, I never could have gotten through this Christmas season with all the different celebrations and shopping and whatever without my, at then it was my two oldest who were driving that I was able to lean on to help me out. So, you know, there are ways in which younger kids, yep, when, you, when kids are really small, teaching them chores is a chore for you. I get it. It's true. But it really does pay off in the future when you're kind of teaching them that idea, that expectation that there are rules, first of all. So there are boundaries to your behavior. And those apply, you know, certain ones inside our home, certain ones outside our home. But then the expectation that they're going to help people, the expectation they're going to pitch in. I think too often in United States especially, in our culture, we fall prey to this idea that we're like our kids' servants. We're running around, you know, driving them to this and that, making sure they have clean food, clothes and food to eat and that they've got their homework packed in their bag and, 
you know, we're running around like we're serving them all the time. And of course, that's part of our role as parents to be at the service of other people, especially our children in various ways. But one way that you serve your kids is by teaching them to serve others and teaching them the value in that. The value in noticing the needs of others. So, and then, you know, even something as basic as manners. Talk with your kids about why manners are important. It's about considering other people's feelings. It's about having a set set rules, set expectations about how you behave in certain situations. And it's a gift to everybody. Um, um, included among manners is saying thank you, right? So this is something that you can do even when your kids are very small to, um, first of all, have them observe you thanking other people in your life that maybe you don't even usually think to thank. Do you thank whoever delivers your mail? Do you thank, um, you know, the, the clerk at the grocery store? Do you thank the garbage man? Do you Who do you thank in your life? Who serves you? Who does things for you, even if they're paid to do it? Have your kids observe you being grateful for the ways other people take care of you and do things for you. And then, you know, talk with your kids about that. Talk with your kids about what you're thankful for and the different ways in which uh, others serve us and that we're called to serve others. I, I find that there's so much inside of parenting. You know, we have these goals like I, I want to raise compassionate kids and that feels like a big kind of generalized goal. But there's so much of it that can be accomplished just in conversation with our kids, talking about our values with our kids. It's so valuable. So valuable to hear them, to have them hear you verbalize the ways in which you're grateful for people who do things for you and thinking about those other people and the ways in which they're sacrificing and serving you and your family and the society at large. I think it really is a very powerful thing to talk with your kids about those things. So that's all part of giving your kids structure, giving your kids boundaries. You know, we talked recently about boundaries and um, part of what you can do even when your kids are very small is teach them that you are a human being with needs and thoughts and feelings and desires of your own. Sometimes we fail to do that as moms because we think it's love to let our kids just kind of steamroll us and do whatever they want. And in some ways, yeah, that's part of motherhood. But in other ways, there are reasonable boundaries that you can set that teach your children that you you do have limits and that you have needs for, for rest, for food, for taking a shower by yourself, whatever it is, um, you know, make sure that your kids are aware of that. Because if they're raised by parents who are super focused on only their own needs, that's like creating a monster. Even an otherwise compassionate child will lose all sensitivity to others if the people they're interacting with most aren't communicating with them that they have thoughts and feelings that also need to be taken into consideration. And that it's just a normal expected part of our everyday life that we do take other people's thoughts and preferences and feelings into consideration. So super important to do that. All right. Second one, besides giving our kids structure to raise compassionate kids, you need to regulate their relationships. Now, this is going to be varying in, you know, age appropriateness as your kids get older. But when they're very little, you absolutely can regulate who they're hanging out with, who they're spending time with. And, um, yep. Okay. So siblings for sure. And so it's not like you're going to say you can't hang out with your brother. <laughs> He's a bad influence. <laughs> Although sometimes it feels like that. Um, but 
you know, also what, what kind of friends they're, they're spending time with, because guess what? That is going to influence them in really powerful ways sometimes. Um, and, and it includes the media that you allow them access to. They may not be hanging out with, you know, that kid on that Disney show who's snarky to his mom, but uh, they sort of are if they're watching that show every day. That's forming them. That's teaching them their values. That's teaching them what's normal. And um, so you want to be very aware of that. And some basic rules for interactions with friends, with siblings, or with shows that we allow our kids to watch are, like, no name-calling. I mean, this is such a commonplace thing in media that's aimed at kids. I cannot believe it. That it's just nasty. This, that whatever, even if it's like funny name calling or, you know, just goofy name calling, not really, you know, destructive stuff. I, I don't like the feeling of it. And I remember years ago that um, I'm going to date myself now because this show, I'm sure, has been off the air for many years. But that that PBS kids show, Arthur, it's a cartoon. The guy was an aardvark. I remember it was books because I think I read the books way back when I was a kid. And then it turned into this cartoon show that my kids really liked. I didn't like the way that the siblings talked to each other on that show. And it wasn't a ton of it, but there was this occasional shut up and, um, you know, different kinds of derogatory ways of referring to each other. I just didn't like it. And my kids loved this show, but we just said no. Oh, I said no. My husband backed me up. Um, but, you know, it's little things like that really do make a difference. And I'm not saying it's like if your kids watch Arthur or whatever the show is today, that's like that, that, you know, they're, they're going down the wrong path or whatever. Um, but these things do matter. And these kinds of influences do add up. What kind of books are your kids reading? Um, I'm amazed at some of the contemporary fiction that's aimed at kids, the kind of content that's in it. Like, first of all, a lot of it's terrible writing. I, I have my own issues with that. But then, a lot of it's like just these really negative relationships with, with family, with friends. Like, why fill their heads with that? Um, so, you know, you have the right and you actually, you have the obligation to be filtering their media influences in that way. And then inside of their relationships, as you're regulating their relationships in whatever way is age appropriate, um, notice how your kids behave with other children and then give them verbal affirmation for the times when you notice them being thoughtful or kind. This is something I've tried to do throughout my kids' lifetimes is be aware of their relationships with other kids. Talk with them about their relationships with other kids. Talk with them about what, what happened on the sports field or at, at, play, at the playground at, during recess or um, at the youth group or whatever. Ask about the other kids they're interacting with. Ask about those kids' thoughts and feelings because maybe your kid hasn't even thought about that other child's thoughts or feelings, but they will when you start asking about it. It will become part of what's normal for them to consider. So that's a powerful way. It's just inside of those conversations and maybe like a debriefing after a play date or a group activity. And this doesn't have to be super structured, like you're sitting in a classroom talking to your child about this. These are normal conversations for parents to have with their kids. Notice the times when they're thoughtful. One example just happened to me yesterday, um, not about noticing my child being thoughtful, but an opportunity to talk about something. So sometimes you can't regulate the kinds of influences they have. It might be a coach that you don't care for, or it might be a teacher that you don't care for. And in extreme examples, definitely we as parents should intervene and, you know, remove those influences from our children. But just yesterday, my son, Danny, our youngest, um, he plays on a flag football team. And I overheard the coach yelling 
during, you know, some break at a bunch, you know, these are 11 and 12 year old boys on flag football and they're good kids. And it's usually a really fun league. Um, just yelling at these boys to get their heads out of their butts. I mean, what, you know, it's not a huge thing, but we don't talk like that. And um, I've experienced this over the years in various ways, uh, especially with sports teams. And for sure, I understand um, football coaches are not going to talk to kids the way that me as a mom is going to talk to my kids. And I'm not expecting that. But I don't know. There's a certain level of kind of disrespect in that kind of talk. We don't talk like that. And so I knew it would stand out to my son. And so I mentioned it. So on the way home, it provided an opportunity to kind of talk about that. Like, not that it's a huge deal, not that coach so-and-so is a bad person, but, you know, what do you think about that? And aren't there other ways um, that a coach can be manly and tough and encourage his team to try harder? You know, how does that make you feel when someone talks like that to you? And um, I think it doesn't have to be this super dramatic moment every time, you know, with the swelling music in the background as you come to your dramatic conclusion. But just the fact that I talked about it, that I noticed it, I know is valuable to my son, that I can talk to him about that. And he'll say, oh, mom noticed that, too. You know, I'm not weird because that stood out to me. Um, so there are thousands of opportunities like that every day, right? I mean, we live in a fallen world, so there's all kinds of places in which um, either your child's going to fall short or somebody else is going to fall short of what your standards are, and it's an opportunity to talk. So that's all part of regulating their relationships with, with their siblings. And this is something my husband's been really great at, is not allowing any level of kind of bullying, teasing, picking on, pointing out that behavior, even in small forms, because it's been my experience, and I certainly experienced this in grade school and witnessed it in grade school, that when that stuff is left unchecked among a group of kids, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And the level of tolerance that the other kids have for it, uh, you know, just grows along with this growing problem of picking on a certain kid, um, making fun of, you know, the, anything. Kids are so merciless. They're so cruel. And um, so just being aware of that, even inside of your own family dynamic, um, I know this from growing up in a large family, that was a large, loving, awesome, you know, such a gift to me to be able to be raised in that family. But there are tendencies, especially in a group of people living together under the same roof to perhaps pick on people or um, label somebody as the whatever one, the lazy one or the messy one or whatever it is. And these things damage our kids. And so, you know, not allowing that. And I know that my husband has a special sensitivity to it from having had a brother who was mercilessly teased as a child um, in school and suffered a lot because of it, that he has a real sensitivity to that. And his tolerance is like zero tolerance for that kind of thing. And um, I'm so blessed by that because it makes me more aware because left to my own, I, I might tolerate some things that I've seen Dan step in and be like, absolutely not. That's not how we're going to talk to or about that person. So, you know, talk with your spouse about it because you both need to be on the same page about about these things. You both need to be um, united in the kinds of rules that you're going to enforce for regulating your kids' screens and influences and sibling relationships and friendships and whatnot. Okay, so that's number two, regulating their relationships. And number three, here we go. You knew I was going to tell you this. You need to pay attention to the example you're setting We've already talked about this a little bit, but what kinds of conversations do you have in front of your kids? Do they hear you trash talking other people? Do they hear you 
making unkind assumptions about other people? Do they hear you mocking other people and being disrespectful of others? I mean, we all fall prey to this sometimes, um, especially if we're angry or upset or we're frustrated. How do you behave in bad traffic? You know, all of these things matter. Your kids are watching you and they are learning. You can have all those important conversations we've been talking about. But then if you're setting a different example, when it comes down to it, your kids are going to notice that. And that's going to speak volumes to them about what you really value and what they need to really value. So pay attention to the kind of example you set for them and then make an effort not only to rule out all those negative ways that you might be setting a negative example about compassion to others, uh, kindness to others, but then try to set a positive example. This is something that's really kind of fun and cute to do, especially when your kids are little, to have conversations about, um, let's say you're you're an at-home mom and your husband's away at work. Maybe, Maybe before daddy comes home, talk to your child about what, what daddy might be feeling like. Do you think daddy's had a long day? Do you think he's tired? What could we do that might make him feel nice and happy and loved when he comes home? What a sweet thing to do. And, um, you know, and of course, daddy can do that for you too, talking with your child about what, what mommy might like. And I find that this is a really powerful thing because kids really respond to this when you're kind of bringing them into your own kind of like little fun plan to do something nice for somebody. Maybe talk about your neighbor. Do you have a a neighbor who maybe needs some help with something? Um, You know, like, do you think that Mrs. So-and-so might like it if we shoveled her walkway or, um, you know, just have them conspire with you to do something kind for somebody else, do something kind for a teacher, for a classmate, for a parishioner, for your parish priest. Um, think about all those people in your lives that you're, that your child comes into um, contact with every day and ways that you might inspire your child to think about their perspective, think about their thoughts and feelings, think about what they might like, right? Maybe um, this is a fun one to do too. If you're out shopping, uh, a lot of us bring little kids out with us when we're going grocery shopping or whatnot. Maybe talk about like what someone else in the family might like for planning for a meal or, um, you know, maybe a sibling especially likes a certain kind of cereal and you're going to pick it up and just don't just do it. Talk to your child about why you're doing it. Invite them into that plan. Invite them into that thought process of thinking about and caring about what other people like. And this is an opportunity, too, where um, stories in books and movies can be a really good conversation starter. You know, there might be, as we already mentioned, some some shows that you're ruling out, but... Um, if, you know, sometimes movies, especially I've found, can be really powerful because they're so emotional or they can really, you know, trigger your kids to feel really sad or connected with their character. Um, they, they can be some kids movies are especially manipulative. Um, but so maybe if you're if your child's watching a movie, maybe at least watch part of it with them and um, talk about the kinds of feelings that you had in the movie. So, you know, giving them that example of thinking things through that you're you're taking in throughout the day, whether it's in your relationships with other people, in your own actions, considering the thoughts and feelings of other people, or reading a book or, um, you know, watching a movie or a television show, inviting them into that thought process of thinking about how other people might feel. Thinking about their thoughts and their feelings and their preferences sets a really positive example. 
Okay, so paying attention to the example you set is the third way to raise compassionate kids. And then number four that I want to mention is think about ways to go outside your own family. We mentioned a few already when we were talking about an example to set. But um, one thing that really opened my eyes to the power of this years ago was a one Lent when we as a family decided um, we were going to limit our meals, our dinnertime meals in certain ways. We were going to not eat meat as much. I forget exactly what all the regulations were. But as a family, we decided for Lent, you know, we're going to have meatless on these days. We're going to not have desserts. We're going to, you know, whatever. We limited our our meal plans in a certain way that was going to actually save us money. And so I, that for that Lent, took what I estimated to be the amount of money we'd be saving each week. And when I was organized back then. I was grocery shopping once a week. And um, when we went to the grocery store, I talked with this, uh, talked with the kids about this. And, um, you know, I would get that amount in cash back at the grocery store. So I don't remember what it was like. Let's say it was $10. And I would, you know, buy our groceries for the week, get $10 in cash back when I paid for the groceries. So really, it was like the same grocery bill, right? But then I had that $10 cash. And we saved it in um, a jar on the dining room table. And uh, so for that Lent, we would put that money in there each week. But then we found other opportunities and the kids really responded to this idea of making other kinds of sacrifices. Like we could um, go to a movie tonight, but how much would that cost? You know, maybe we're not going to do that. We're going to put that money into the jar instead. And they started looking for ways to make their own sacrifices and put them into the jar. And in the beginning, we weren't talking about what we might do with the jar. But then by the end, we had decided we were going to buy buy use that money to buy groceries for our local food pantry. And they were super motivated by that idea, like thinking about a child or a family who might be in need of some good food. And if I skip this one thing, I can put this amount of money into the jar and it will buy, you know, a certain amount of food for somebody who needs it. Someone local in our community, you'll never meet them probably, but Um, somebody nearby. And they were so motivated by that. And I loved what it brought out in my kids during that Lent. So don't, you don't have to wait for Lent to do that. And you don't have to do it in this big structured way, but look for opportunities to do exactly that. I know one mom who um, encouraged her kids when they they were, I don't know, there was like at their parish, they were taking donations of toys for a fundraiser thing or a yard sale kind of thing. And she encouraged her kids to clean out their, their toy boxes and bring what they were willing to donate, but not just, you know, because left to their own devices, kids and us included, will just bring our junk right? Oh, this is good enough for somebody else, or I never use this anymore because it's broken or whatever, um, to really choose something that would be a sacrifice to give to their church. And um, her kids really responded to that. So don't underestimate your kids. And I think that a large part of a, a the way that we can encourage our kids to be more compassionate is by having higher standards and expectations, So often over the years, I remember when our kids were all little, they were pretty well behaved at mass. And I remember um, some other, you know, older ladies maybe talking to me after mass saying, how do you get your kids to behave like that? And honestly, 100% give the props to Dan for that because he was so good about having standards. And I remember that was the only thing that I could even think to say to these women. Not that our kids were perfect, but at a certain age, our older ones knew the rules. 
And they set the good example for the younger ones. And it just was expected behavior in mass. And, um, you know, like I said, not that they did it perfectly. I'm not saying that. But what I what I am saying is having standards and having expectations, even if it's hard, like choose a, a maybe a nice toy that you like and you will miss to give up. You know, make a sacrifice of something you enjoy to be able to purchase food for um, someone in need. And then making your kids an active part of that process, whether it's bringing the toy and making that donation or like in our example, that Lent. Um, I brought the kids with me at the end of Lent when we had a certain amount of money and we were going to spend it on uh, groceries that we were going to donate to the food pantry. And we didn't buy all, you know, canned beans or whatever. I let my kids choose what they thought maybe another child would like or what would be a treat for a family um, as well as basics, you know. But give them that opportunity to serve others and to think about the needs of others and be an active participant in it. Give them that opportunity to make those sacrifices because even though it might, it feels hard, um, our kids get so much out of that. And it's such a wonderful feeling. It's such a wonderful gift to give your kids that opportunity to serve others in that way. Or you might consider, and now a lot of us do this during Lent, keeping track of the good things that they do for other people, those small sacrifices. Some people use those St. Therese sacrifice beads to keep track. I don't have any of those. I think it's been years since we had any, but they're a great idea. If you don't know what they are, it's like a little, a little set of beads. I don't know how many are on a strand, but you just pull a bead and move it to a different part of the strand um, every time you make a sacrifice and keep it in your pocket and try to get through the whole thing during the day. Maybe it's like 10 on there or something um, that, you know, whether it's, you know, offering something small up like someone's getting on your nerves and you're not going to snap back at them. <laughs> it's huge. It's huge. And um, but giving your kids a chance to keep track of those things is really motivating um, to, you know, it, it counts. It matters. God notices. I think that really kind of reinforces that for them. And the more they are inclined to do it in those small things and encouraged by you to do it in small things, the more it's going to build their character and become a part of who they are to be compassionate, caring people who are generous and kind in their interactions with others. So um, it doesn't have to be the St. Therese beads. It could be um, putting beans in a jar. We've done that for sure. Um, putting hay in a manger. Advent's coming up. This is a great opportunity to do that. Um, that reminds me, I do want to do a show about Advent in particular and Advent with kids of all ages and because people have so many great ideas um, and I'd love to pull them together. So if you have some, definitely let me know um, and you know, send me an email, danielle at daniellebean.com. I'd love to hear from you about your Advent ideas. But anyway, that's an aside. But you know, so this final one is just going outside your family. And, uh, you know, for sure, it starts in your home with your own relationships with your kids, teaching them kindness and compassion toward others. But ultimately, it's meant to extend to the world, right? Um, and, and as I have older kids now, I can tell you that when I see them, you know, all the way across the country and they'll send me a text about something going on with one of their friends, somebody that they met at the school, some interaction that they had with somebody I'm so proud of those moments where they're kind, where they're compassionate to others. And that's more meaningful to me than any of the other awesome things they might accomplish. And I still try to verbalize that to them. I still try to reinforce that to them. So ultimately, the most important thing we can ever do is raise compassionate human beings. So those are my four different ideas. Give them structure. 
regulate their relationships, pay attention to your own example, and then from there, go outside your own family. But you might have your own ideas for ways to raise compassionate kids. Let me know what works for you. I'd love it if you sent me a Voxer. You can always find the link to connect with me on Voxer in the show notes for every episode of the Girlfriends Podcast. The show notes now are published at ascensionpress.com. Click on podcasts there and you'll find all the information from every show from Girlfriends. Um, Or you can send me an email or connect with me on social media. You know I love all the different ways that we can communicate. Email for me is danielle at daniellebean.com. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a moment. And if you're looking for a way to learn more about your Catholic faith, I invite you to check out the Ascension Presents YouTube channel. You're going to find tons of free videos featuring Catholic presenters like Matt Frad, Leah Darrow, Jackie Bobby Angel, and Emily Wilson. Go to youtube.com slash ascension presents. That's youtube.com slash ascension presents. And if you like what you see, please share and subscribe. Welcome back. Now for this next segment, we're going to be talking, as I promised, a little bit more about the content of You Are Enough, What Women of the Bible Teach You About Your Mission and Worth, my new book that's newly available from Ascension. If you want to order it from Ascension, you can go to ascensionpress.com, also available on Amazon. Thank you all for your support of this book. But I want to share with you here on the podcast a little bit more about the content of the book. And today we're going to look at Judith. Okay, are you familiar with the story of Judith? A lot of us aren't because, first of all, the book in um, the story of Judith is not included in Protestants' Bibles. So it's a Catholic thing. We get Judith, okay? Um, And I love this story because it's so surprising. And um, I've heard from women. I used to share about Judith in a talk that I did a few years ago, um, looking at women of the Bible. And um, so many women are like, I never even heard of Judith, right? So the first several chapters of the book of Judith are like kind of building up to this big story of Judith. And um, it's like this um, all done in exaggerated ways, um, in in order to kind of emphasize the drama of the situation that it's it's building up. So it's describing the strength of the enemies of the Israelite people in a small town that's called Bethulia, which is um, where Judith lives. And there's a powerful Assyrian army under the leadership of a powerful general who's conquered all the other areas and now he has surrounded this small town of the Israelites, and it looks like they're going to be easy prey, right? So then in chapter eight of Judith is when we really start to read that this, the people are hopeless, they're giving up all hope, and yet here comes Judith's opportunity to shine. Now, Judith is a widow. She's described as beautiful, but also holy and righteous, a woman who respects and obeys God. So every way that she's described is as virtuous, right? And so when she hears that the leaders of her small city are planning to surrender to their enemy um, in the next few days, she calls upon those leaders and chastises them for their lack of faith in God and tells them, no, God has a plan and um, it's not surrender. So she, her words really, um, it's, it's really beautiful. If you haven't already read this, especially chapter eight in the book of Judith, it's worth taking a look at. Um, so Judith's words really convey this deep sense of trust in God's goodness, just fearlessness 
in the face of a powerful enemy, fearlessness in what seems like a desperate situation. And, you know, even strong men, even the leaders of her community are planning to just give up. But then so she gets permission from the leaders of her community to hatch her own plan and she gets to work. And the first thing she does, and I love this, is she pretties herself up. (laughs) She's a beautiful woman, we're told, Um, but she adorns herself with, you know, she does her hair and she puts on her fine clothes and jewelry and her beautiful sandals. And um, I, I love that this is part of her strength, her womanly beauty. And now we're not all supermodels, right? But that's not the point. The point is that woman, the beauty of a woman is really meant to be the apex of God's creation. We're, we're meant to be a reflection of God's glory through our feminine beauty, which is real. And, you know, we can follow on all different, you know, parts of the spectrum with regard to our physical attractiveness with, you know, or, you know, our community standards of physical attractiveness and all of that. that that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the beauty of the feminine form, the beauty of the feminine spirit, really, which is supposed to be expressed through us physically, that we're meant to be that. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with the fact that we enjoy, generally, women enjoy things like hairstyles and hair color and makeup and pretty clothes or jewelry or flowers or, you know, all those things that we're kind of naturally attracted to. Um, Of course, you can go over the edge with any of those things, but that's not what we're talking about here. And Judith recognizes that her beauty, her attractiveness, her femaleness is power. And so she uses this. She takes her servant with her. She dresses herself up in this way. And she beguiles all the guards of the enemy camp that are surrounding her people with her beauty. And they let her walk through um, because she's just so attractive, right? Um, So this happens and she works her way in and meets the general. And he, too, is so beguiled by her beauty and her charm and, the, you know, the beautiful words she speaks to him. It's not just what she looks like, but she's, you know, praising him. She does flatter him. Um, but she just has this charm about her that makes everyone want to be with her, including this enemy general. So in this way, she works her way in and spends a few days there. Um, and spends time with the general who is so attracted to her and is falling in love with her, and yet she maintains her own virtue. She's not having sex with this guy, Um, and she's just there in this enemy camp just becoming a trusted person who who is present there, and she gains the trust of this enemy general, Holofernes, okay? And um, by gaining his trust, eventually... He becomes so overwhelmed by her and is falling so much in love with her that he plans this big feast and sits with her and drinks and drinks and drinks. <laughs> and he gets totally, totally smashed. And um, I love that the Old Testament has st- stories like this in it. The Old Testament truly is rated R. There's all all kinds of stuff in there. Um, but anyway, the, this general becomes so drunk and his servants assume that she too is becoming drunk. She is not. And um, that the two of them are going to sleep together. And so they leave the two of them alone in the general's tent. And this is the most powerful moment in the book of Judith, where we see where she is fully aware of herself. And this man who she has come to overcome is passed out drunk. And there's his sword. And in that moment, she just says a prayer to God for strength. And then she cuts off his head. She cuts off his head. 
puts it in a bag and returns to her people who rejoice at the fact that a woman has overcome their enemy in this way. And I just find this so amazing (laughs) in so many ways. And if you read the book, you'll see so many details that are just astonishing inside of this story. Um, So let's talk about this. And, you know, the fact that why would God include this story inside of scriptures? Right. Um, Of course, it's just a powerful story of God's people overcoming their enemies by trusting in God. Right. And um, God using a otherwise seen as weak and harmless creature, this beautiful woman, to overcome someone of great strength and great power. And I I love that this story includes that moment in the tent where Judith is by herself and she knows what God is calling her to do and feels perhaps scared, perhaps terrified, and yet trusts in God to follow through with his plan for her. And how many of us, uh, most of us will never wind up needing to cut off somebody's head, right? But how many of us have felt that way about something that God's calling us to? How many of us have felt that God is calling us to something really daunting and crazy and truly outside of our comfort zone? May not be cutting off someone's head, but it might be something that feels as bad as that, right? Sometimes, and sometimes it's just the everyday getting up and living out of our vocations that feels impossibly hard. Just all those little tiny details of being a wife, of being a mom, of going to work, of, you know, all that stuff that adds up can sometimes feel overwhelming. And yet that's what God's calling us to. So I love the book of Judith because it's so out there. And this character of Judith is so out there with her amazing strength as a woman. But I love that she doesn't become strong by becoming a man. She becomes strong and she acts out her strength by fully embracing who she is as a woman. And that's what every one of us is called to do. So that's just one character that I take a look at inside the Old Testament in my book, You Are Enough. If you want to read more, you can get the book at Amazon or you can buy it from ascensionpress.com. I will have the links in the show notes at ascensionpress.com. I just downloaded the Voxer app for the very first time and I'm trying it for the very first time. Danielle Bean, you are lucky to be my very first person I am ever sending a Voxer message to. <laughs> Long time ago, I learned about you, I think um, fall of 2014, when you came to Charlotte, North Carolina for the Mothering with Grace conference. And I just started listening to your podcasts um, because I needed some something, something from somewhere. And you were the first person I went to. And um, I've enjoyed listening to two of them so far. And I just today listened to a third. I listened to Ways to Support Your Husband as a Spiritual Leader. Um, The second one um, that I listened to was This is Why Your Marriage Isn't Perfect. And then I um, joined your online Facebook group. I went on there and then saw um, your NFP episode. So I actually went back to episode number 63 and listened to that just now. And um, NFP, and I have to just say thank you, thank you, thank you so much because all of exactly what you said I have struggled with. Uh, It was just really, really good to hear what you had to say that NFP is hard. And I just recently wondered, like, is sex only for babies? Is it only for making babies? Because, and I worry because um, I have nine babies and love them all dearly. And as you mentioned in the show, I completely agree with that 
thanks be to God, it wasn't up to me. And um, even though I have been disillusioned by NFP, I um, and want to come to the true meaning of what sex is in marriage. Um, I am not one of those, I was not going to give it up because I do not want the alternative, which is um, I do not want to turn to, um, to contracepting because I just think that's just divisive and I don't want division between my husband and I, I want union. But um, there's much, much more to say about all of this, but I just want to say thank you for um, what you shared in there. It totally brought me to tears and bawling, crying, because I was so thankful to hear someone talk about it. A lot of my friends have um, many children too, and um, but nobody talks about the struggles. And so when I was pregnant with my ninth, having gotten um, pregnant on day four of my cycle, I was like, God, what are you doing? <laughs> and I cried and cried and cried. Um, but then after I knew what I needed to do, I needed to do, knew I needed to have some friends support me. I knew I needed to go to confession just, just to get it off my heart that I was scared again to be having another baby. I also needed to have father our priest at our parish pray over me. I did all of those things and it was so good. Um, God then blessed me with the tremendous gift of having um, tremendous consolation. My baby is now six and a half months old. I love her to death. She was actually born on Easter Sunday. But anyway, all this to say is that the struggle of NFP is really hard. My husband has pretty much given up and I, on, um, you know, NFP working for us, I guess. And so I have to find them. I feel like it's up to me and to find what will work for us. So here I am pouring my heart out to my phone to you, Daniel Bean. I hope this reaches you. And, uh, and, uh, and I just, I guess, thank you so much for what you're doing for keeping this girlfriend's podcast. And I thank you for the technology we have these days to keep people like you and I connected like this. I'm thankful to hear that other people struggle like me too. So, but anyway, thank you, Danielle and take care and God bless. I want to thank you, Jennifer, for taking the time to pour your heart out. And just a note, I did edit some of Jennifer's note to me because um, I wanted to protect her privacy in certain areas. But the gist of it's there. And um, I appreciate the fact, Jennifer, that especially you wanted to connect about that NFP episode. It's something that's been on my heart. It's been on my mind. Um, you mentioned that it came up in our Facebook group. Note to everyone, if you're not part of our Facebook group, you are 100% absolutely invited to join us at facebook.com slash groups slash girlfriends podcast. We would love to have you there. It's a private group. It's a closed group that's just for people who listen to the podcast. And we have the opportunity to share about the topics here. Also, whatever might be on your heart and mind. And that's how the topic of NFP came up. Someone was asking if I would do a show about NFP. And as Jennifer mentioned, I already have done a show about NFP. Um, but this particular person on Facebook was requesting that I do a show talking about the reasons why I love it. And um, I shared in that podcast that Jennifer referenced, and we'll have it linked up in the show notes. I think she said it was number 63. Um, that 
I struggled. We have struggled. It, NFP has been a real challenge and in some ways a real cross inside of our marriage, inside of our family life. I think in a, a way that turns out for the good for all of us, but that doesn't lessen the struggle. It doesn't lessen the reality of sometimes the hardship and the sacrifice that it has been. So I've always been hesitant to be one of those people that's going to put a happy face on it and tell everybody, here are the reasons why you should use NFP. And that said, I think that it's important to share the positive reasons to use NFP. And so it's one of those tricky topics. Someone like Jennifer needs to hear a certain message from um, from a person like me. But someone who maybe is coming at marriage and family life from a very secular perspective needs to hear something very different. And I think I did share in that NFP podcast a while back that back when I wrote this article once, a very you know raw, real, honest article about the things that I struggle with with regard to NFP and that have been a burden for us and a sacrifice for us inside of our marriage, um, that it was picked up by Catholics for Choice, ugh, and used for their purposes to you know promote contraception among Catholics. And never my intent... It was a twisting of my words, and um, it, but it was just it was speaking to the wrong audience. So I think you have to be careful when you're talking about topics such as NFP to know who your audience is. There's one message that someone like Jennifer needs to hear, but there's a different one that maybe um, a kid in high school needs to hear. That maybe someone in your everyday basic you know parish marriage prep needs to hear. Uh, I think it's important that we give people the whole picture and that we're honest, but maybe not in uh, sharing all of our struggles with somebody who's not, first of all, on the same page with us with regard to church teaching um, on the meaning and purpose of sex in married life. Anyway, that said, we're getting late in the podcast here, so I'm going to have to take up that topic on a future episode. I'm, I still need to think about and pray about the way in which I want to talk about that. Um, as you can hear through Jennifer's sharing, that that's something that's very painful and very much a challenge for people um, inside of their married lives, especially in our world, which gets so much about sex and marriage wrong. So it can be really challenging inside of a secular culture to try to live out a, a faithful Catholic marriage, especially when it involves a great deal of sacrifice on on the part of um, the husband and the wife. So if you have thoughts on the topic of NFP, positive, negative, anywhere on the spectrum in between, or if you have a way that you would like for me to address that topic on a future episode, I do think it's important to talk about. I think it's important to be real and honest about, but I just want to be super considerate and careful about the way that I do talk about it, especially here on Girlfriends. So anyway, give me your feedback. Or if you just have feedback on today's episode or another episode or a topic you'd like me to take up, reach out to me. You know I love to hear from you. I love it when you Vox me like Jennifer did. You can connect with me on Voxer. The link is in the show notes at ascensionpress.com. Or you can always send me a good old-fashioned email, danielle at daniellebean.com. Or if you just want to record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me, danielle at daniellebean.com, I would love to have it. I especially love to be able to add your voice to the Girlfriends podcast. That's what we're all about here. It's not just about me talking at you. I want this to go both ways. So thank you, Jennifer, for sharing. Thank you, all of you, for your feedback. Thank you for all the ways that you connect and communicate with me here at Girlfriends. But most importantly, thank you just for being here. Your presence means so much to me. It truly is a gift to me week after week. Thank you for being a part of the Girlfriends community. And until next time, I hope you enjoy your day and God bless your week. Girlfriends is a collaboration between DanielleBean.com and Ascension, the leader in Catholic faith formation.